Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, the director of one of the coolest films of the 1980s, Taking Tiger Mountain, Tom Huckabee. Tom, how are things? Oh, I'm good. And I'd like to say welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and emerging gender variants. Well, I have to start by asking... How did you come to acquire the unused celluloid from Bob Fosse's Lenny for your own production of Taking Tiger Mountain? Well, that had nothing to do with me. Uh, Kent Smith uh, did that part. He was the original director of the film uh, and was partnered with Bill Paxton. Bill was 19, Kent was 30. Uh, Bill had just left Fort Worth a few months before where we'd been making movies together for about a year. And uh, he got a job working for Encyclopedia Britannica and was assigned to a producer, director on staff there, uh, Kent Smith, who had been a one-man band until Bill was assigned to be his assistant. And then uh, so Bill helped him make some educational movies and and Kent saw Bill as a potential movie star and wanted to make movies uh, Kent did and Bill did and uh, so Kent wrote a screenplay for Bill Destarian called Taking Tiger Mountain and he had some idea he you know he'd been um he had graduated from UCLA, uh, Ken had, uh, maybe the first graduating class of UCLA in the um, 60s. I think he'd been there with Jim Morrison and Raymond Manzarek and, and, oh, maybe uh, John Carpenter, Francis Coppola, or some of the other people that went on to great fame and fortune. And... He wanted to um, make features like them, and uh, uh, one of the ideas that he got was <clears throat> going to that place one goes to back then uh, to buy short ends, uh, and uh, just happened, I guess, to arrive on the day that uh, they were auctioning off the short ends from Lenny, the Bob Fosse black and white movie, and so he bought all of the, all of the short ends from Lenny. Well, when you first saw what Kent had directed, what were your initial thoughts on the film Taking Tiger Mountain? Okay, well, uh, let's see. That would have been '74. Um, Bill, after he left town, kept you know, calling, saying, hey, it's great, Tom, you got to come out. And I was like, I'm still in high school. <laughs> and But when I graduated, I drove out to uh, L.A. and joined up with Bill, and he got me a little bit of work. And then uh, he had already, and then, but uh, I think he had already started working for uh, Corman, and uh, and then I got his job with Kent, and uh, among other things, maybe in the first week on the job, all the film 
process film that they had shot in Wales a few months before arrived. And um, since I was Ken's assistant, um, uh, I got to see all of the, the dailies, 10 hours of footage, 35 millimeter black and white anamorphic footage. Um, and I don't think Bill ever actually saw it himself and he had kind of already moved on i don't think he thought even that that it would ever get finished or amount to anything they only managed to film about half of the script that um kent had written uh and so for the next few years kent tried to raise the money to go back to Wales and uh, never did. And, and when I was in my last year at film school, about four years after, four or five years after that, um, in Austin, I uh, talked him into uh, leasing or loaning me the footage to see if I could turn it into anything. And so we made a contract and he sent me everything. And then I spent the next five years working on it until it uh, was released in the original version in 1983 and played the landmark theater circuit in America and maybe a couple of film festivals overseas. Well, you were friends with Bill Paxton from early on. Can you tell us about how that relationship came to be? I met him on an airplane going from Fort Worth to, well, we went to New York first, of course, and then to London, uh, uh, where we were both enrolled at uh, um, Richmond College on the top of Richmond Hill in the west end of London, uh, which was affiliated with the University of London. Uh, there were about 10... Uh, people from my high school, Southwest High in Fort Worth, and 10 people from his high school, Arlington Heights, uh, they had all already graduated. Uh, some of us from my uh, from my, yeah, from Southwest were still in, we're taking our junior year abroad. So Bill was getting college credits, I was getting high school credits since the spring semester of 1973, and um, I don't think he paid much attention to me. He was like, the most popular uh, guy on the trip, and uh, until I got a letter from back home from PCU, Texas Christian University, I had uh, entered one of my films that I'd made in high school and had won first place in the student category and got $50, a check for $50. And he helped me cash it and spend it all in one night at, uh, at the pub across the street from the school buying people drinks. And But he was very impressed. Uh, uh, and we discovered that we were both um, interested in movies. He had been taking some acting classes back and forth, and I think he had a secret desire to be a movie star, uh, but that he kind of played 
play those cards close to his chest. I never really realized that because, um, well, when we got back to Fort Worth four months later, we bought an Ectosound Kodak. It was the first Super 8 sound camera. And, uh, and we wore that camera out, wore the motor out, making uh, little sound movies. And uh, usually he was behind the camera with me. Uh, we would co-direct these things. And uh, sometimes he'd play a small part. But, uh, you know, I didn't even realize it till few years later that he really wanted to be a uh actor and uh yeah but i don't know if i answered your question on that or not uh, well, yeah of course well your first film the death of jim morrison really helped to shape what would come next from you can you take us through this and those other films that you were making with bill before taking tiger mountain never came to be the first film that we made together, we made as a project for a friend of mine's uh, history class in high school, and uh, it was called Victory at Auschwitz, and it was about a group of uh, Jewish prisoners on a train being taken to Auschwitz, and a, and a U.S. fighter pilot. Uh, parachuting out to uh, save them and Bill and I played uh, two of the victims captives and uh, we shot this in the rain down at the train yards in Fort Worth that Bill had haunted as a kid he was in it really loved to explore and so he knew or it's like the back of his hand and he had spent a lot of time hanging out down on the train yards and so we uh, just you know stole onto the property and we had collected a bunch of uh world war ii helmets and guns and bayonets and flags and dressed uh a freight car with a great big nazi banner and uh, we're shooting this movie, and we noticed there were people kind of collecting out on the road a mile away watching on the first day. And then on the second day, uh, we were uh, confronted by about five or six police cars that came racing onto the property and all drew their guns and told us to throw our guns down. And... Uh, and then they recognized one of us uh, as being a police cadet, uh, but they had told him, you know, that uh, we almost all died right there. Uh, and, and but then after we kind of talked it over with them, uh, they let us keep shooting, <laughs> and. Uh, even the train yard, you know, people let us keep going. I think maybe that's because Bill had gotten involved and charmed them. And uh, so we finished that film. Then we made a movie called The Parable, which was a, a parody satire about a, a young man obsessed with Dirty Harry movies who uh, uh, gets inspired uh to uh, 
Well, he makes he makes three dummies and takes them out into the woods and kills them. And uh, it kind of it's a uh, it's kind of a long story about a short film, but it turned out really good. And, uh, we won a film festival award in New York for that one. Uh, we made a couple other little movies, and then we started a very elaborate animated film called Life After Death, and Bill did the drawings for the first episode, and, and that's when his dad uh, discovered that he had a serious interest in movie making, uh, which he shared with his dad, and uh, his dad bought him a one-way ticket to Hollywood and uh, sent him off. Uh, I begged him not to go. Uh, you know, I wanted to, us to stay in Texas and start a Texas film uh, industry. And uh, he was like, Tom, you know, this is my dream, my what I've always wanted to do, you know, so I'll see you later. And, uh, and then he just hit the ground running and, uh, you know, got into doing uh, set dressing, which he did. He worked for Jack Fisk, who was Sissy Spacek's husband and David Lynch's best friend and did a lot of um, uh, set decorating on Jack Fisk movies um, that were usually produced by Corman, one of the Cormans. Well, and, yeah. then, and then the death of Jim Morrison came to be. Can you oh, death of Jim one? Morrison, sorry. So meanwhile, so I, I went out to join Bill, uh, and but then he got a job uh, that took him to New Orleans, uh, and then uh, I spent. Yeah, so I was pretty much on my own uh, working for Kent Smith, and then got a job at a place called the Film Factory. But I got homesick, uh, and Bell uh, didn't ever come back. So I enrolled at the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, and, um, uh, took a couple of years before they'd actually, uh, let me take film classes the way they, things were set up. I continued to make shorts on my own, uh, uh, at this point without Bill. And then for my first official project at UT Austin. I made this movie called The Death of Jim Morrison, which uh, was about the life of Jim Morrison flashing before his eyes as he was dying in the bathtub. And uh, it won some awards. It um, won the regional division of the Student Academy Awards. Uh, and I was told by my... Uh, Professor Edward Demetric, who had been a uh, big Hollywood director, that um, and he had sponsored uh, the death of Jim Morrison, and um, he said that it had won the national award, but that uh, the Academy didn't want their name associated with it, so they opted to not give a prize for experimental cinema that year. 
which was the award that it had won. I don't know if this is true. It's just something he told me. Um, and that ended up uh, being distributed finally commercially about five years ago by Lewis Black of um, South by Southwest fame. Uh, he specializes in uh, reviving, resuscitating old um, films made in Texas. And he put together a package of films called Jonathan Demme Presents Made in Texas. And it was six films made in the late 70s, early 80s by uh, filmmakers at UT who were also involved in the punk rock scene. And so uh, the death of Jim Morrison, I ended up uh, making some changes to it. And it was remastered into 4K by a man who had specialized in um, doing a lot of, um, oh, he was one of the top restoration guys in, in the world. And uh, and we redid the titles, and I changed the name of the film to Death of the Rockstar. Uh, because uh, I just decided that I... It wasn't proper to be trading on Jim Morrison's name. Well, your work with the Austin music scene has been one that has spanned decades and even led you to working on a film about Texas punk bands now. Uh, do you prefer to play music over filmmaking? And can you tell us a little bit about that upcoming project? Sure. My uh, music career lasted exactly two years. Uh, from 1978 to 1980, and I was in two seminal Austin punk bands, the Huns, who were sort of the Sex Pistols of Texas, and uh, the Reversible Chords, which were more musical, B-52s, Talking Heads-sounding uh, group, uh, and... Uh, there are about four official records, um, an LP. The Huns have a live LP and a single. The records have a studio LP and an EP. And um, uh, But um, that period of my life was very eventful and productive. And I've stayed in touch with all of the... Uh, other bands that, that uh, some of them went on to a lot more fame and fortune than we did. Um, my band split up in, 1980, in 1980, but um, a lot of the other people kept playing music. And uh, uh, so I'll cut to 40 years later, and I'm making a documentary, feature documentary, uh, with a, uh, another friend from that scene named Ken Hogue, who's a photographer who shot all the best pictures of the Sex Pistols uh, during their San Antonio gig. Uh, and, and he was a photographer who filmed all of the bands from this club called Raul's, where we played. It was the only club for a year or so in Austin in 78, 79 that would allow punk rock bands. And uh, 
So it's kind of the CBGBs of Austin. And um, uh, so the name of the film, the working title, is called Legalized Crime, The Story of Raul's. And, uh, well, we don't really have a deadline. We're trying to, you know, uh, you've heard the term fast, cheap, and good. You get to pick two. And so we're making it cheap and good. Um, so we're not making it fast. Uh, we're just uh, collecting interviews from just about everybody who ever played at the club. And uh, it'll be done sometime in the future. Well, I wouldn't even say the near future, but uh, it will eventually be done. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's very exciting. You mentioned John Paxton, Bill's father, who was very instrumental in helping and shaping who both you and Bill would become as artists. Can you take us through your relationship with him? Was he more of a father? Yeah. Was he more of a father figure or more of like a mentor to you? Uh, more of a mentor, an artistic mentor. Uh, he had groomed Bill uh, to be... Uh, an artist uh, by taking him around to all the great art uh, museums of the world. He was the uh, vice president of the Fort Worth Art Museum for a time. Uh, he ended up quitting over the purchase of a Picasso painting for a million dollars. He argued that they could have bought 10 or 20 better paintings by lesser-known artists. And uh, it's not that he didn't like Picasso, but he thought he was overpriced and overrated. And uh, uh, But anyway, he, he was, uh, you know, his uh, main art was art collecting. And he just had an incredible appreciation for... Uh, just about all kinds of art, and uh, uh, including movies. And at a young age, he uh, was, you know, taking Bill to the movies, and and you know, when Bill was seven or eight, and John would, you know, be telling him things, you know, saying, "Hey, how'd you like the production design on that film?" And Bill would be going, "What's that, Dad?" And his dad would explain what that was. And so at a very early age, he was learning about the craft of filmmaking from his dad. And his dad was a great reader as well. So he read a lot about filmmaking and he just had great taste. I think maybe on the first night I met him, I'd been invited to dinner at their house out in the country outside uh, Fort Worth, and he uh, had a copy of the book Jaws, uh, which was the bestseller, but I'd never heard of it. And uh, and he said, this is going to make a great movie someday. And, of course, he turned out to be right. And uh, so he often, uh, you know, for the next 20 or 30 years, was often turning us on to... Uh, stuff that we wouldn't uh, know about otherwise and sometimes they turned into 
projects that we ended up working on. Uh, but I just really learned, uh, I mean, I loved art, but uh, I didn't know much about it from an academic side uh, until getting to know Bill and John uh, because of Bill's association, you know, with his dad. Uh, by the time he was 19, he, he knew as much as most college professors of art about the history of art and uh, ended up following in his dad's footsteps once he made some money in the movie business he spent most of it on uh, buying art moving back into taking tiger mountain for a second the film originally had no sound yet now the sound design is one of the most striking and in my opinion greatest elements i'd go so far as to say one of the best sound designs in that era what was your direction for that and did it turn out the way that you intended even on the new revisited cut wow yeah that's a big big question uh so uh, let's start at the beginning. So when Kent uh, bought all the short ends from the film Lenny, and he and Bill flew originally to Morocco with a script Kent had written called Taking Tiger Mountain that was a, a, a sort of like a dream-like experimental feature inspired by the French New Wave, especially Godard and Italian cinema, especially Fellini. Uh, but he was inspired, the plot line was inspired by a recent um, uh, or a current story in the news about the kidnapping of John Paul Getty, the young grandson of the richest man in the world that ended up as a movie by Ridley Scott a couple of years ago, which is interesting since uh, John Paxson and Ridley Scott were best friends. Um, and I don't know if Ridley knew that, uh, that we had made this movie. We did have dinner with him one time, pitched him some ideas in the 90s, but I don't think we mentioned Taking Tiger Mountain, so I don't know if he knew about it or not. But anyway, uh, so they uh, rented an Aeroflex 35-millimeter camera, and they had the 35-millimeter film, but they didn't take any sound equipment with them because Kent was inspired by Italian cinema. And so was Bill. Bill loved Sergio Leone, uh, and Kent loved Fellini. And they just both agreed that they wouldn't uh, record. They'd do all the sound in post. Uh, they had a lot of uh, dialogue sequences, um, but by the time they got kicked out of Morocco and ended up shooting in Wales where Bill knew some people. So they uh, kind of threw out the script uh, uh, or were using it but making up a lot of other stuff as they went along. And uh, 
so what they came back to America with was sort of half of a film where half of it was based on the script, half of it was just made up uh, with the people in Wales that they recruited. Uh, so when I got it, um, when I took it over, the 10 hours of footage and I cut it. First thing I did was to just cut down the 10 hours uh, using just the best sequences visually that I could find. And that ended up being about an hour or a little less, maybe 15 minutes. And, and, and it was, you know, pretty great, but it didn't have any sound. Uh, and it was 15 minutes there and there wasn't any thing you, one could do at the time with a 15 minute 35 millimeter x-rated film uh so i knew it had to be a feature if it was going to be released at all uh the feature was it needed to be 75 minutes i think was the minimum so i shot uh 10-minute sequence, that opening sequence, and then I, so then that got me up to like 65 minutes, and I made 10 minutes of sequences out of outtakes, repeating material, and, um, and but anyway, it was still all silent, except for the stuff that I shot, uh, uh, and then, uh, and then, yeah, I had, to, I hired a lip reader to find out what the people were actually saying in the dialogue sequences. Sometimes they were saying the stuff that Ken had written in the script, and then sometimes they were speaking Welsh and didn't really matter what they were saying. Uh, and meanwhile, I came up with a new story, uh, about, a team of feminist terrorists who uh, kidnap a American expatriate or draft dodger in the future, played by Bill, and uh, and they train him to be a time bomb assassin descending to a little town in Wales, which has been set up by the common market European Union government of the future as a legal prostitution camp and his job unknown to him is to assassinate the head of the camp. Uh, and none of that had been part of the original story. Uh, and, uh, except that but the original story was about a young man who just kind of wakes up on a train and is, and doesn't know how he's gotten there. And he just wanders into a town in uh, Wales where that's kind of a town without pity that's run by a, uh, oh, a gangster who is um, now exploiting young boys and girls and Oh, kidnapping them and selling them as sex slaves, <laughs> something like that. Uh, 
uh, but anyway, so to answer your question, uh, then I started, uh, so it was completely silent and I just started building soundtrack. Uh, I hired or, um, corralled uh, some friends of mine that played in a, uh, oh, an early techno band in Austin, the only techno band, uh, called Radio Free Europe, and they contributed all of the sound or sound design that you hear in the film. And then I hired uh, local actors to uh, dub the voices, and a lot of my fellow students and professors did voices, and then uh, Bill came in uh, for about two weeks in 1980 and dubbed his part. And uh, by then I'd written uh, a lot of voiceover dialogue for him and to try to make it all make sense. And, and then, but a lot of the narration of his that you hear, it's not really narration, it's kind of stuff uh, that's happening in his head and in the past. So they're almost like flashbacks, but they're only audio flashbacks. And a lot of that he improvised and improvised it under hypnosis. Uh, so I had a friend who was a psych student, uh, hypnotizing and then we gave him tests like uh, Rorschach tests and personality questionnaires and so he answered the questions kind of combining his own personal experience with the character uh, so a lot of that stuff that you hear him saying uh, is a mixture of his own experience with um, with the character's experience, uh, and but then the character, of course, is very much based on him at that point in his life uh, when he was 19 years old. Uh, by now, when we were actually recording the sound, it was five years later and he'd actually started getting some work down in Hollywood. Um, uh, and then when I got graduated by UT, I wasn't done with the film and I had to figure out how to finish it. And it turned out it was cheaper. I'd raised some money, uh, but it turned out it was cheaper to finish out in L.A. And Kent Smith um, wanted to help at that point. And so uh, uh, we finished it together and redid most of the dialogue besides Bill's part. We redid most of the voices um, out in L.A. by hiring professional Welsh actors uh, to redo the dialogue, uh, or about, oh, maybe 
at least half of it we redid down in L.A. Uh, and then it came out in 1983. We were never, none of us were totally happy with it. Uh, and then, which is why it was never on video. And then I got an offer four or five years ago from Video Syndrome. Video, that's not their name, Vinegar Syndrome. Vinegar Syndrome, yes. And uh, they gave me a small advance, uh, $1,500, and I talked it over with Bill, told him that I, uh, that, you know, I made sure it was cool with him, that it was going to come out, and he was cool about it. I told him that I wanted to fix it or just make it a lot better and he was very happy about that and uh uh and then he passed away before i really really got started on it so i guess it was as a tribute to him that i ended up you know spending another two years and a whole bunch of money uh to just revisit every frame and every uh, second sound uh, to just try to make every, uh, you know, cut out 10 minutes and added five minutes, you know, added a new ending and new end credit sequence and end credit song. and, And more than anything else, also um, uh, set decorated the film, and so all of the all that erotic art that you see on the walls, we literally just put that in, you know, using modern digital, uh, you know, uh, Final Cut or whatever we used. I'm not a editor, but I hired some really good editors and. Uh, and so we just, like I said, we just went to uh, every shot in the film and uh, improved it in one way or another. You've talked in the past about how Taking Tiger Mountain connects to other films. Can you take us through these? Yeah, sure. Uh, I was always a big fan of post-apocalyptic um Genre, you know, the Omega Man, uh, Planet of the Apes, especially Zardoz by John Borman was is one of my top three favorite films of all time. And Bill was a big fan of it too. Uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Strange Love, all the just about all the Kubrick films were inspirations the prisoner television series and then but also um uh kent smith and i both were big fans of william burroughs and burroughs had written uh blade runner a movie uh was the name of a novella post-apocalyptic novella that he wrote and which is where the name Blade Runner comes from. Uh, Ridley Scott purchased the use of that word or that title. 
produced film, and um, uh, and so uh, thematically, I see the film as almost a dialectic between the uh, militant, radical uh, misogyny of William Burroughs' work with the radical misanthropy, actually that misandry, I think it's called, uh, I'm not getting that word right, of Valerie Salonis, the woman who shot Andy Warhol and wrote the Scum Manifesto. So the kind of, thematically, it's kind of like, what if there was a world where one, where there were two power centers, one inspired by William Burroughs and one inspired by Valerie Salonis, and then they go after each other. Do you feel like this new revisited cut is the last time that you're going to touch the film? Do you feel like you've done your work now and you're going to put it aside? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think maybe as... uh, uh, you know, there's still things about it that bother me, uh, and uh, and I I could see making the film again, maybe in animation, maybe like using the kind of style of animation you know that Rick Linklater has perfected. Uh, 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 it's a the themes I think are going to always be really important to me. You know uh, the themes of uh, uh, the eschatological aspects of in time uh, themes of apocalypse and. Uh, and also um, uh, sexual politics, gender fluidity, um, and uh, transformation, and uh, psychedelic drugs being used to program people. They can be used. Uh, they can be weaponized and used uh, nefariously to program people uh, and they can also be used uh, in a benign or enlightened way to program oneself uh, towards uh, enlightenment. Um, And uh, yeah, and then sexual exploitation and slavery. uh, These are all themes that have been lifelong interests of mine that I am 65 years old so can't uh, teach an old old dog new tricks so (laughs) they'll probably continue to be obsessions of mine so uh, I see Tiger Mountain as just kind of a perpetual um, it's kind of like a you know, story that, uh, yeah, that I'll just continue tweaking, uh, God willing, uh, until I'm, you know, 
have ridden on ahead to that undiscovered country, uh, which is so beautiful that no one ever comes back from. Your second feature, Carried Away, came after such a long break. Did you find this an easier film to make this time around, or did it open up its own can of worms? Uh, well, let's see. Yes, it was much easier to make. Uh, of course, I had a lot more experience, uh, and I had become a much better writer. I had studied uh, screenwriting uh, pretty intensively, and I had ran uh, run Bill's uh, company, American Entertainment, and had done... Uh, was head of development for him, and uh, I'd gotten really good at uh, conventional film structure, and I wrote that script, uh, Carried Away, in the 90s, and it had been optioned by a producer, and had gone out to all the studios, and just didn't happen, and uh, when I moved back to Texas in 2006, following the death of my wife and my mother and my dad had Alzheimer's at this point and uh, so I moved back to Texas to help him and then got a job running a local film festival and I met a bunch of young guys that were making movies uh, locally really cheaply and really uh, good and uh, and I got together with them, and uh, they read Carried Away and liked it and offered to help. And uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, so I found out you could make a, a movie, uh, do it, you know, well for much less than what it would cost in L.A. And we shot that film, I guess, in about six weeks and uh, finished it within a year of, of starting. Took about a year to make as opposed to five years or or 30 years on taking Tiger Mountain Revisited. Yeah. Uh, yes, it was much easier. It was a totally different kind of film. Uh, you know, it's very conventional, um, a conventional dramedy about a dysfunctional family. Uh, it was semi-autobiographical, uh, about a young man who kidnaps his grandmother from a nursing home in order to save her from misery. She's got dementia and thinks she's in prison and has been trying to escape. And uh, that was, uh, uh, had happened to my grandmother. And I uh, came home from Christmas from Hollywood in about 1983 to find her tied to her bed and thinking she was in prison. She'd actually had escaped a few times and it one time got out and stopped traffic for about five or 10 miles at rush hour, uh, dragging her walker down the middle of the highway, trying to get back home, even though her house had been sold by my father and uh, 
Uh, so anyway, I made a movie about what if I had kidnapped her in order to take her back to Hollywood to live with me, and then my father and brothers chased after us across the southwestern United States from Fort Worth to the desert of California, where my character ends up losing his grandmother when, during an argument, she gets out of the car and hitchhikes for a ride. And uh, then his father and brothers show up, and he has to admit that he's lost Granny. Uh, And then it goes on from there. What was the response like when you started showing that film around? Carried away? Yeah. Well, (laughs) a lot of people that had knew me for punk rock and uh, taking Tiger Mountain and the death of Jim Morrison were befuddled by it. (laughs) Uh, uh, And uh, just had never met my soft, warm, fuzzy side. Uh, So uh, some of those people were not fans of the film. Uh, But, uh, you know, it got really good response at film festivals. I won three first place film festival awards and uh, found a distributor, never made any money back. In fact, I went bankrupt from it, uh, which is a pattern uh, in my uh, filmmaking history as well. Uh, So that part, it was similar to (laughs) taking Tiger Mountain. That was the only thing it had in common taking Tiger Mountain, Uh, which is why I I make uh, a feature about every 10 years, you know, because it takes me that long to recover from from the previous one. You had such a close relationship with Bill, and your working relationship was absolutely fantastic, in my opinion. Would you say that your work on Frailty was a collaborative effort with Paxton, or did you keep a hands-off approach to producing that film? Uh, I was not very, even though I'm credited as executive producer, uh, pretty much all I did was um, read the script, which uh, had been given to me by um, a partner at the time of Matthew McConaughey, Gus Gustavus, is the young man that he they'd grown up together in Texas and they had a relationship kind of like mine and Bill's and Gus was running Matthew's company. I was running Bill's company. We got together over lunch for that, per, you know, uh, cause it just seemed like the right thing to do. And, uh, and he had this script frailty that, uh, he and Matthew had shepherded that a young man from, Irving, Texas, had written, and then just, he wrote it with Bill Paxton in mind, uh, with Bill Paxton and Matthew McConaughey in mind. Uh, You know, it's just kind of one of these uh, uh, stories of kismet that, you know, like 10 years later, it actually got made, you know, with Bill... uh, I was, uh, when they approached me about it, um, David Kirshner was the producer. He had, uh, created Chucky, the killer 
doll and Fifle, the, the mouse, uh, and uh, but he was looking to get into more adult fare, and uh, he had this script frailty that uh, every studio in town had passed on it because it was just to, uh, uh, it was outré or uh, transgressive, I guess they thought. And uh, and when they, so Gus gave it to me at the point when it just kind of, uh, you know, just wasn't going anywhere and asked me if I would get it to Bill. I read it, loved it. Uh, and, uh, you know, sent it to Bill and encouraged him to read it and he loved it and, uh, uh, but said that there's no way that he would, uh, be in it. They wanted him to play the father and he had two young children and just was not interested in playing a father that abused his children, uh, which is the way that he, uh, that's, that was his reading of the film or the story. And, uh, but then, uh, so that was that, but about three or four months later, uh, he woke up in the middle of the night and called me in the morning and he said, tell him I'll play the father if they'll let me direct it meaning uh, if he could control the way that aspect of the film was, you know, the abuse of uh, kids by a parent, that if he could control the project as the director, that he'd be willing to do it. And then, then the process and it was kind of a long process of convincing them because he'd never directed a film. So I was involved in that part of it. Uh, uh, but once David Kirshner met Bill, and Bill uh, came in extremely well prepared to the meeting. I think he was blown away by Bill and convinced that he could do it. And then... Oh, I guess another year or two went uh, by as they tried to convince, you know, financial players that Bill was the right guy to direct it. And uh, I don't think the deal actually came together. They had Bill and they had Powers Booth, but I don't think the deal, the money came through until Matthew signed on to play the character of uh, Fenton, uh, and they have, they were good friends. Uh, they had done uh, U571 together, and a submarine movie. Uh, so my part of it was really just um, in developing development. And I had a little bit to do with um, post-production uh, those are my two main uh, areas of expertise, uh, pre-production or development and post-production. Not so much production, which where Bill was uh, a master of and didn't really need my help on that end.
Have you stayed up to date with the music and film scene in Texas? Uh, I, you know, yes, I would say so. Yeah, because you know, I've uh, ran a film festival and I uh, attend a lot of film festivals, and I do keep up with both music and film in Texas. Why do you ask? I'm just curious if you've noticed any any filmmakers or particular films or even bands that you that you can see breaking out in the near future. Well, uh, yes, as a matter of fact. Uh, do you know the film Vast of Night? The Vast of Night? That is ringing a bell? Can you refresh my memory on what that is? Well, the director is actually from Oklahoma, but most of the film was made in Texas, and a couple of friends of mine produced it, Adam Dietrich and Melissa Kirkendall. Uh, it's gotten tremendous reviews. It was picked up, uh, by Amazon, you know, my films are on Amazon, but you know, they, I didn't get any money from them. The vast of night, um, I think got their budget back from an advanced sale. It's gotten amazing reviews, uh, I would say the only reason that it's not better known is because of COVID. It was uh, one of the first films released after quarantine began, uh, played at drive-ins, and is now available on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, It's a UFO. It's kind of like a Poor Man's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it deals with the radio uh, DJ, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's yep. set in the 1950s, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's a, a two-hander about a young uh, a girl, high school. They're both high school students. The, the guy is a DJ and the girl is a telephone operator. And they both, it takes place in a 12 or 24 hour period where they uh, both become aware of of an alien invasion in their small town. It's ostensibly set in New Mexico, except that it has a strange wraparound, which is the only part of it that I don't care for, where you're told that at the very beginning that it's a episode of a of a pseudo twilight zone called parallax parallax theater i think uh and then and i and i i don't understand i don't really know why i don't know the filmmaker i can't even say his name except that i know that he's gonna be uh one of the next big things in Hollywood, Steven Soderbergh uh, took an interest in Amy Wan, I think, best film at Slamdance last year, and uh, the Audience Award or something like that, and uh, won some other awards, and it's a virtuosic uh, filmmake, piece of filmmaking uh, that harkens back to Robert Altman and a lot of French New Wave films. 
uh, and uh, let's see, it reminds me a lot or his, uh, for some reason, of, um, what's the guy's name who did The Witch in The Lighthouse? Uh, Robert Eggers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I wish I could say the guy's name, and but I, I can't uh, just because I can't think of it. Um, I'm, I, it, I had to watch it four times before I really warmed up to it. Uh, it there, to a certain degree, it's a challenging uh, film. Uh, it's very talky and very long takes uh, like Altman and uh, uh, there's just some things about it that really rubbed me wrong especially when I saw it was driving because it's very dark film really stretches what uh, digital cinema can do in low light situations and you see it at the drive-in you know there's hardly anything on the screen except just shadows you know uh so i really didn't like it the first time but then uh had to see it three more times before i uh decided that uh, it was you know best new thing since sliced bread well what advice would you give to upcoming filmmakers to try to break into the scene just uh, the same as it's always been. Just make make movies. Uh, don't expect to make any money making movies. Uh, and, uh, you know, figure out some other way to make money. Uh, either working on uh, other people's movies uh, or teaching movie making or throwing paper out like Bill did. Uh, uh, make your movies on the side, uh, make them for the amount, you know, whatever money you've got in your pocket. Uh, you know, you can make a movie these days. It used to cost something cause you'd have to pay for the film. Well, now it doesn't have to cost anything. Uh, the problem is the same problem as ever. Once you're done it, getting anybody to pay attention to it is always a, a big problem and since there's thousands and thousands of people doing it uh, it's hard to get uh, noticed uh, but you know for people that are obsessive compulsive uh, artists like myself and Bill and, uh, and you can't do anything else uh then uh, you know those people are just gonna do it it's kind of like a virus you know you uh like herpes or something once you gets in you then it's and you're just you never get rid of it and uh yeah and just uh make your movies and uh Oh, promote yourself. Bill was really great at that part. And 
I learned a lot from him about self-promotion and about just uh, not being humble or not being shy, I mean. And uh, and every chance you get, uh, show your movies to anybody who will watch them and help other people make their movies. And, uh, yeah, try to create your own little scene like, Rick Linkletter is probably the most successful person of my generation. Uh, actually, he's probably 10 years younger than me. But, uh, you know, I uh, just recently read a great article about uh, that was in the Texas Monthly about the early days of, um, of uh, his, well, it was just his history, you know, how he ended up starting the getting interested in films and deciding he was going to be a filmmaker by hook or by Kirk and starting the Austin Film Society and five years later having enough money to make Slacker. And uh, then instead of going out to Hollywood, once Slacker was success, success, he just stayed in Austin and kept making movies with the same people that he had uh, you know, started making movies with and just built it in, built it into an empire. So I would say Rick is the uh, prototype for any aspiring young artist who wants to make films in his own way or their her own way and control them and not uh, be dominated by the film industry. Uh, I, I guess I, I, I know a lot about the film industry just because I was in Hollywood for 25 years, but uh, what I didn't want to know about the film industry and still don't really want to know about it. Uh, you know, I just want to make my movies and uh, have people see them and, and then survive somehow at the same time. Well, speaking of making the movies, what can we expect from you coming up other than the documentary on Raul's? I do have a number of projects. I've written a musical uh, that takes place kind of in the same universe as uh, Taking Tiger Mountain, but it's a a musical comedy set in Houston 100 years in the future. You know, Bill played a draft dodger from Houston, a hundred years in the future in Tiger Mountain, but uh, in Houston, uh, it's it's a utopia rather than a dystopian story. It's a utopian story. Uh, it's five interlocking love stories set against the backdrop of the annual art car parade, which I've been attending for the last five years, which is kind of uh, Mardi Gras of Houston. Uh, when all the hippies of Houston come out and for a week have just this great big party showing off their, uh, their art cars. And, uh, and so, uh, the story will be filmed against the backdrop of the actual, uh, event, uh, and I'll hopefully shoot it next April. It's called Merge, a science fiction art car sex 
farce musical. And it's based on a Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> well, Tom, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. I hope everybody goes up and picks Taking Tiger Mountain Revisited Up, available now on Blu-ray through the Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, yeah, just thank you again so much, Tom. It means a lot that you came on here today. Well, God bless you, Robert, and uh, thank you so much. And uh, let me just tell your uh, listeners to uh, check out my website, which is called goldalchemy.org. It's a filmmaking co-op and, uh, and where you can uh, see Taking Tiger Mountain and Carried Away and a lot of my short films and uh and also you can be involved in uh goldalchemy.org oh yeah and they're they're welcome to get in touch after they've seen uh taking tiger mountain or anything else and send me a note and i'd like to hear about what they're doing too and i'll look forward to listening to this and more of your podcasts Thank you, and hopefully we can have you on again in the future. I would love that. Awesome. Have a, have a great day, Tom. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Keep up with all things Tom Huckabee over at goldalchemy.org. Make sure you pick up Taking Tiger Mountain Revisited, available now on Blu-ray through vinegarsyndrome.com. This concludes our broadcast day.